0: So our next speaker for the subject of Planet is um, Gaya Vince, who's a traveller, author, broadcaster, journalist specialising in issues on science, the environment, and on society. She was the first female winner outright of the Royal Society Winton Prize in its 28-year history for her remarkable book, Adventures in the Anthropocene, which we're going to talk about now. So welcome to the stage, the remarkable Gaya Vince. Ah,
1: nice uh, oh, what a great festival this is! I'm really, really enjoying myself. Oh, good. Yes. No one's it's ever said that listening before. Listening to all these <laughs> amazing people talk, you're so lucky. <laughs>
0: um, Gaia, I just wondered if so, Anthropocene was genuinely a new word to me. Um,
1: and it's a fairly new word, anyway. I mean, yeah. it's a made-up word, yeah. and people always say how they do you pronounce are, it, yeah. you know? And well, with made-up words, you can pronounce it how you like. I call it Anthropocene. Oh, okay. In America, they call it Anthropocene. Anthropocene. Do they? Yeah. yeah, I think um,
0: it, means it, the, it means it means the age
1: of humans. Yeah, literally, the age of humans. But
0: they meant so it's it's actually defining a geological era, isn't it? Um, so prior to this, the Holocene. Yes, is that correct? So
1: yeah, so, so, I mean, that's what's so mm. remarkable about mm. this time. We really are living in an extraordinary time. Um, so, uh, geological eras of the past are defined generally by uh, huge cataclysmic events like a supervolcanic eruption or, um, or an asteroid impact, like you'll have heard of the Jurassic or the Cretaceous when the dinosaurs ruled the world. Well... Um, the Cambrian, which is a huge explosion of life, well, the Anthropocene is similarly massively changing the planet, but these changes are all caused by us, a single agent and and that's really. I mean, it's quite remarkable, and um, it resets our understanding. I mean, we, we've already heard about um, Copernicus, um, you know, who who put our place in the universe as um, as just another planet going around the sun. Um, you know, Darwin did the same. You know, we, we were humans were not this uh, this godlike creature anymore. We were just a small twig on the grand tree of life. Well, um, the Anthropocene is reshifting that and saying, well, actually, we are pretty bloody amazing. You know, we are, we are changing the planet in the way that only an, a dramatic physical event has done before, really.
0: And you hear that phrase um, touted out, you'll hear it on the news often, won't you? This is felt to be due to human impact or whatever, but there was a recognition from you that that phrase was cropping up in context, which would seem remarkable. So you'd, you'd hear about human impact, even in terms of butterfly migration, glacial melt rate, ocean acidity, wildfire frequency. So human impact was. It seems obvious now to talk about in hindsight, but the ubiquity with which that was a presence on natural yeah. phenomena was becoming ever more apparent. True?
1: Yes. Well, so there's a new field that's only been around in the last decade or so, which is Earth system science, which really recognises that everything is interlinked. The climate is interlinked with um, uh, the ecology, with uh, hydrology, and so on. Um, and intrinsic to all of the changes that are going on at the moment <coughs> is humans. So, so yes, I mean, I was. Um, was a, I was an editor at the journal Nature, actually, um, and I was sending reporters out to cover stories, and I was getting a lot of scientific papers in, and they were saying, you know, um, extinction rate is very high, or uh, climate change has gone up, the acidity of the ocean is increasing, all these different things, and I was recognising that something really quite extraordinary was happening, that, that they were all linked, and it was all down to us.
0: Is it as recent as that? Because that surprises me. That uh, what do you say the new field is called? Earth systems.
1: Well, so yeah, yeah. so there've been various people that have come before that have said, you know, there's for example, the Gaia theory, mm-hmm. um, uh, which said that the, the which looked at which looked at the Earth as a kind of um, almost a, a living system uh, that, that regulates itself. Mm. Um, I think we're understanding that it's, it's more complicated than that because, um, well, for a, for a start, it can't self-regulate because something is, something is changing, something is pushing it beyond that, and that is humans, but then, you know, what are we if we are not of nature, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm following um, also an atheist, so I don't believe that there is a divine being. I, I believe that, you know, we are part of the natural world. Is what we are doing unnatural? Mm. Um, But the
0: the notion that we're integral and, in fact, impacting on things, even though it's widely accepted now, and even with writers as far back as Rachel Carson commenting on Mm. our impact in nature, you're suggesting almost that, in fact, it's a relatively recent recognition uh, and acceptance that we're integral to what's happening in terms of, Climate change, etc. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people have looked um, have looked before at discrete parts of this. Okay. So people have looked at climate change, but or they've looked at biodiversity, or they looked at pollution. But I think scientists are now starting finally to to recognise the integrated nature of these impacts, but also the fact that the solutions also need to be integra- integrated. You know, we can't. We can't just solve one thing with, without uh, thinking about yeah. the impacts elsewhere and, and um, how they all feed into each other. Yeah. But the plus side of that, of course, is that by solving one thing, you can then, of course... Knock on effects. Yeah.
0: I mean, um, you make the really interesting analogy in the book, almost comparing ourselves to a child who's tucking into a bit of chicken or a burger, and the recognition that this thing they're greatly enjoying is also a live thing, you know, not wildly dissimilar to the pet in their house and that sudden terrible ambivalence as to our responsibilities and our, and our hedonistic joys are very closely linked.
1: Yeah. It's, it is a shocking realisation, mm. I think, in everybody's life. That, yeah. um, and some people become vegetarian because of it. Mm. You know, and other people reconcile these, these issues in a different way. Um, it's a bit like that recognition that we're mortal. I mean, in order to carry on our daily lives, in order to get from day to day, from hour to hour, to continue our, the mundanity, quite often, of our lives, we have to live in denial. You know, if we knew that, if we, if we really recognised every second of the day how precious that was, yeah. we would never get anything done. You know, we have to live in denial. But how, how long should that denial um, extend for? you know, should it extend as much as the next generation? Should it extend 20, 30, 40 years? Because we have to make decisions right now that are going to affect our lives in the future, the lives of the next generation and so on. And,
0: and the pace of change now, this is, comes across very clearly after, you know, 200 years yeah. or whatever of um, industrialization, the pace of change in the last 20, 30, 50 years is accelerating. Yes?
1: It's enormous. Yeah. So, so there's this... Um, it's described by scientists as the great acceleration. Um, and really, it describes this massive uh, leap in human activity since the end of the Second World War, mm. in everything from human population to energy use to water use to um, land use to crop production to nitrates production to uh, everything, everything. You just you look at the, the graphs mm. of human activity, and they shoot up. And yeah. it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Mm. But then, if you then compare it to the impact, to how, um, to to how various earth uh, systems are uh, responding to that, you see, of course, that they are also going up. Mm.
0: The interesting thing, um, a particular thing, struck me actually reading your book was it's very easy to sit here and go terrible human beings, noble uh, non-human life on the planet, but. You made the point that we exploit the biosphere as every other species does. That almost integral to life is an exploitation of the biosphere, but within there, saying also then that, that somehow our consciousness, I guess, and our ability, and also our power, our reach, places demands on us that may well be different to other species.
1: Yes. So, um, so we like. Every other species mm. is exquisitely adapted mm. by evolution to our habitat mm. and to exploit that. Mm. And, and, you know, I'm sure you all know that bacterial experiment where you, you give the bacteria enough food, it reproduces um, exponentially, and then, you know, they all die because there's not enough resources left. So we, we have something which, which other animals don't have, and, and that is that. We are not just biologically adapted to our environment, but we're also culturally adapted. Um, so we can live in in every other environment, you know, from the Arctic to the tropics, and in every different climate. We also adapt our environment to suit our needs. You know, where things don't occur naturally, where there is no lake, we create a reservoir. Where where um, where water appears as a solid rather than a liquid, we use it to make a house. You know, we do, so we adapt all our things, and we also adapt our culture. We adapt our needs to suit um, what we find there. So in some places, um, they use water a lot more sparingly than in other places. But we are also the first species, to my knowledge, that, that, um, that consciously uh, adapts, um, self, self-limits... You know, we decided, for example, not to exploit um, certain rainforests. We deliberately conserve them. We decide not to eat certain animals that are endangered. We are limiting our population size, so fertility is now, global fertility on average is now 2.4. That, you know, women on Earth are now having just, just over the, re, um, the uh, equilibrium because um, it's got to be more than two anyway because of maternal and child deaths. So, we're very close to, to reaching an equilibrium there. I mean, there is not another species on Earth. So, so these sorts of things, I think, show that we are incredibly adaptable. We're incredibly um, good at surviving, you know, we've, despite everything. So um, that, that does make me optimistic, yes.
0: And, and much of what you talk about is, in fact, the processes, and we'll come on to some of these stories, of how societies and communities are adapting to a changing environment. But the point you make, again, harking back to what we said about acceleration, was that le- with a couple of hundred years, we'd probably adapt to climate change. Mm. But in fact, the change is upon us in the next century or less.
1: Well, it's happening. Mm. It's happening already. Mm. You know, so so um, um, I, I went on a journey to, to visit people mm. who are at the forefront of climate change, mm. who are really experiencing these changes mm. right now. And, um, very visible changes and to say a
0: bit about that journey that was over a few years three that years? was over
1: yeah two and a half years, um, mainly in the global south because that's where people are affected so so I went around more than forty countries um, visiting people who who are already experiencing our, our um, changes, but, but at, uh, at such a level that, you know, they live very close to their environment and, and a lot of people can't cope with any further environmental change. You know, it threatens their livelihoods or, or even their own survival. So um, I was quite interested to see how people are coping hmm. with these changes. At a human and level. At a, at very a human level, level, level yeah. and, and what it means, because... Because... You know, what you, were, what you were saying earlier, that, that all animals exploit their um, environment and so on, well, we, we, all, we all do that. Um, but because we have become this dominant species, because we hold the destiny, really, of other natural life in our hands, you know, does that imbue us with a sense of responsibility? Do, do we have that responsibility, even though we are doing just what everybody else is doing? Um, I mean, I would argue, yes, it does, you know, just... The point of the journey was not to not to angst over. Oh look, there's no panda bears. Um, it's very much. I'm very. I'm very much interested in in the human perspective. What does it mean for us? You know. What does it mean for the survival, the enjoyment, the comfort, the the livability of our planet um, for us and and for the next generations to come, and and that does include things like you know, are we only going to have elephants for the next 30 years? Mm. You know, I love elephants. Mm. That would be very sad. Mm. Um, But it also means, you know, where the hell are we going to get fresh water from? Mm. How are we going to create um, enough food for 9 billion people when we're already using all the arable lands that we have, Mm. um, when we're eating a lot more and um, a much higher protein-based diet, when um, soils are depleted, when fresh water is depleted, when um, we have... Global warming and an increasingly erratic, unpredictable climate. You know, um, how are we going to do all these things? Mm. Was, an attempt to find some answers.
0: <laughs> I just wonder before we go on, would, there, would that be a good moment just for a quick reading? Yes, that's sure. all right. Yeah. Got a, um, you can ignore the pink. Um, ignore the pink. My, well, okay. you can, they're my favourite bits. But
1: okay. Well, I'll do that then. <laughs> the underlying bits.
0: Oh. Uh, <laughs> Don't tell them.
1: Sorry, sorry.
0: No, there's no underlined bits. <laughs> no. Whichever bits you like.
1: We live in epoch making times, literally. The changes that humans have made in recent decades have been on such a scale that they have altered our world beyond anything it's experienced in its four and a half billion year history. Our planet is crossing a geological boundary, and we humans are the change-makers. Millions of years from now, a stripe in the accumulated layers of rock on Earth's surface will reveal our human fingerprint, just as we can see evidence of dinosaurs (coughs) in the rocks of the Jurassic, or the explosion of life that marks the Cambrian, or the glacial retreat scars of the Holocene. Our influence will show up as a mass of species going extinct, Changes in the chemistry of the oceans, the loss of forests, the growth of deserts, the damming of rivers, the retreat of glaciers and the sinking of islands. Geologists of the far future will note in the fossil records the extinctions of various animals and the abundance of domesticates. Earth is now a human planet. We decide whether a forest stands or is raised whether pandas survive or go extinct, how and where a river flows, even the temperature of the atmosphere. We are now the most numerous big animal on Earth, and the next in line are the animals that we have created through breeding to feed and serve us. Four-tenths of the planet's land surface is used to grow our food. Three-quarters of the world's fresh water is controlled by us. It's an extraordinary time. In the tropics, coral reefs are disappearing, ice is melting at the poles, and the oceans are emptying of fish because of us. Entire islands are vanishing under rising seas just as naked new land appears in the Arctic. Um, Thank you.
0: The thing that comes out, though, is that the, the technology that we've amassed has wonderful benefits for us our longevity, our life quality, our enjoyment of the planet, but then harms that follow. The stories that you meet in this um, journey then exploit the same technology, the very same technology, to adapt around, um, so adapt around the very geological changes and challenges that communities are facing. So that that really fine line <coughs> perpetually, almost what you know, medics might call a therapeutic index between the risks and the very clear gains is constantly being balanced, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think that we can put a, uh, a value, um, an a, a, a me- ethical or moral value necessarily to technology. Yeah. I really don't. Um, and... I mean, when I said I'm looking at our, from our human perspective, I think, that, I think we really are extraordinary. I think we're really amazing. Our, our cultural evolution that has taken us to this level where we do, so many of us live in comfort, so many of us have the luxury of time to, to enjoy life beyond mere survival. You know, it's not just about, um, you know, eating, shagging, shitting, dying, or whatever the you know, other animals are doing. You know, we, we really, we do have this, uh, we, we explore this, this the wonder, mm. you know, the wonder of life. Mm. Um, and technology has helped us do that, you know, ever since the first um, hominid, you know, I, I, capuchin monkeys. Mm perhaps use tools mm. we've discovered yes. yeah. you know um, whether or not we call that culture um, i would argue no mm. you know but but somewhere along that line between them and between homo sapiens mm. you know we did develop cul- we did mm. develop tool use mm. and that has brought us to where we are now and and i exult in what we what are we able have achieved. to do and do to. yeah and we have changed the planet and We've changed it in a lot of ways that have been very bad for humans and um, very bad for the rest of nature. But we have changed it in a lot of ways that have been very good for us. And, you know, when we say bad for, for other, other wildlife, well, you know, what do we mean? Some, some species are doing very well. Eucalypts have never been so successful. You know, <laughs> rats, um, sheep, chickens.
0: So, I mean th- Influenza virus. So it's very easy, isn't it, to caricature it as bad or good. But yeah. you're saying, in fact, it, it, the mor- there's no moral absolute there, other than a very clear recognition that things are accelerating in a direction that's adverse. They are, yep. and at okay. the
1: moment we are reaching certain crises, yep. and they are going to affect a lot of us. And and you know, and then we need to look at, you know. Who is doing, who is making the changes? Who is receiving the um, benefits or the curse of these changes? You know, and how are we, and when I say we, humanity as a global community, going to do something about this, you yeah. know?
0: But it would strike me, I would, I would wonder anyway, if there's truth in this, that the more impoverished parts of the planet are going to disadvantage, are going to be more disadvantaged yeah. as a result of climate yes. change, than those of us who sit in relative comfort. Yes, yeah? and
1: they are, and they are for for two reasons. One one of which is d- poverty mm. and the way the infrastructure there and the way people live. Although there are some quite interesting examples, actually, of um, just indeed, to indeed. be devil's advocate. Yeah. Um, when I was in Bangladesh, mm. um, I I was talking to quite a lot of people, and some of the very very poorest people who had been. Washed off, you know, had to had to move to slums and so on. Um, their outlook in life, <laughs> and um, decades on and continuing, was actually a lot more positive. And a lot, b- they, they moved. They had to keep moving. You know, it, awful circumstances because, you know, first of all, the paddy fields were no longer workable because um, of saltwater incursions. So then they tried um, uh, shrimp farming. That didn't work because you know, whatever, pollution. So, so then they're moving to the cities, moving slums, they're starting new different trades yes. and so on. They're successful um, at what they're doing. They're moving yeah. up slightly gradually yes, um, better. The landowners, however, the middle class yeah. of that society who own the land, yeah. Lots of them committing suicide yeah, because, because yeah. they can't, yeah, completely paralyzed by it. And, and, and I'm not trying to extrapolate there at all and mm. say that um, people in the developing world in the tropics are not bearing the brunt. Of course they're bearing the brunt mm. and they, they really, you know, they, they do not have the resources mm. to deal with the enormous global problems that we're facing in yeah. terms of you know, all these issues. Yeah, there somehow, um, and
0: again, without romanticising it, potentially more intimate with the notion of fragility already and yes, plastic and responsive yes. to it. And yeah. also,
1: because the tropics, they, they get more extreme... Um, so, so the tropics already has different types of weather systems and different, so, so there are a lot of them are dependent on, for example, they might be dependent on glacial water for the river systems. When the glaciers disappear, that they're, they're immediately affected. They're also dependent on um, uh, the regularity of the monsoon, which is changing. Um, um, aquifers that are being pumped dry. So, So they have particular problems because of the geography as well as as well as the social problems. And, and, and one, of the, one of the points that I really want to make in my book is that, is that all these environmental problems are caused by humans, and humans are not like all the other animals. You know, we do have human needs, we have human desires, we have human behaviours. And so in order to understand and to solve these problems, you have to understand the social problems and work with the social problems, because it's only when society Sorts us out, that the environment will be, and it, it, they are so intricately Mesh. woven and and meshed. Yes, so mm. so um, yeah. Well I, th- I wonder I if we could just ground
0: the conversation then a bit in in some of what you've talked about in here with regards to um, the experience in the Maldives <laughs> and um, the, ne- the now no longer President uh, Mohammed Nasheed, Nasheed, yeah. Yeah. And his description of this as, as, as the greatest hum- humanitarian crisis, really, facing the planet since World War II, mm-hmm. yet the response to it being very different. And some of it really struck me in that um, piece in the book, but then also, you know, a lot of the chapters reflect on some remarkable technological ingenuity in bioengineering that I would, would strike me as the stuff of science fiction, but is being realized in parts of parts of this. Well that, that's
1: one of the beauties of science fiction, mm. isn't it? It's mm. how we explore mm. possible worlds mm. that scientists themselves might feel um, uh, th- they might self impose a restriction into even thinking about these things. But you imagination's being called upon, isn't it almost yes. now? Yes. Um, yes it is. We do have to we do have to examine different futures and we do have to we do have to realise, we, ha- we have to become self-aware as a species and realise we are now living in different times. We yeah. are living in the Anthropocene. And so all the, all the old norms that, that we have used, you know, um, many of our systems are, are built in classical times, you know, um, or, or at least um, in Victorian times. Mm. <laughs> and, and we need to change that. We need to change the way we do everything towards, you know, a time of, massive human population, nine, perhaps ten billion, mm. limited resources, you know, and an unstable climate. And, um, yeah, so Ani Nasheed, he's... Um, yeah. So the Maldives is, is a series of atolls, and the, the highest Just point... What, what's an atoll? Um, the atolls are um, they're created by uh, coral reefs. So, so basically the, entire, the land is not rock, it's made of coral. Which is alive. Which is alive? Well, some bits of it are alive. Yeah. Most of it's um, most of it's um, ancient or dead. You know, it, it okay. builds up, but but it's limestone, yeah. so it's easily dissolved. Yeah. Some of it, some of it is alive. Yeah. Yes, yeah, um, <clears throat> and it's very vulnerable to uh, warming temperatures. Coral. It's also very vulnerable to um, acidic conditions. Um, it just literally dissolves. Um, uh, you know. Um, anyway, so um, pollution. All these things, all these things that we are um, that we're experiencing globally, they, they all sort of come together in, in the Maldives. And the highest point is, is a metre above sea level. So, you know, rising sea levels, whether it's thermal expansion of the oceans or whether it's because the glaciers have melted and added more water to the oceans, all these things threaten the existence of the Maldives. And, and when you talk about the disappearance of a nation, you're talking about a disappearance of somebody's homeland, you know, if you identify as British, you, you identify with um, traditions, with stories, with history, with nursery rhymes, with fairy tales, with where your family is buried, where, where you grew up, your hometown, all these, all these things which make us human, which make us, which root us and ground us in our culture and in, um, in our environment, um, they face being stateless fa- fairly soon, you know, within a lifetime. Um, That means a disappearance of the language, no one else speaks Maldivian, Um, of the culture, of all of these things. Um, And it it brings, of course, the idea of, um, you know, climate change refugees, where are they going to live? Are they going to have a sort of annex of another country? Or are they just going to be assimilated into, I don't know, Sri Lanka or India or um, other neighbors? And what they are facing, we are all facing to a certain extent. Um, because, because we now live in a very interconnected world, we can't escape that. You know, um, not just physically and biologically interconnected in terms of the Earth systems, but but also in terms of the people we know. I mean, um, I'm sure all of you know people who live in, uh, who who are of Indian origin, for example, or of um, other other. Well, you obviously do, but, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know you know what I mean. We, we are all interconnected, so. Um, this six degrees of separation to somebody who is experiencing directly an impact of our global yeah. um situation, and we 're not such a big real. island
0: ourselves are we really frankly no so we're not um, no we're not and
1: you'd think the way we were behaving that we were somehow <laughs> completely right, isolated high landmass, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're trying aren't so we?
0: what kinds of things i mean things like you know um even floating islands being mooted mm. or, re- as you say, relocation. Well, this, the is the, this
1: is the exciting thing. Mm. So, so um, to me, you know, we people around the world are experimenting now with how, how on earth are we going to solve these problems, mm. okay? So, um, coral reefs are disappearing. I mean, personally, this is an enormous tragedy because I'm a diver, and I remember as a child um, going to coral reefs in Australia and seeing... Just the most amazing, multicolored underwater world that I—I I just couldn't describe. And you know, they, these things just do not exist anymore. Mm. Yes, you can go to the Great Barrier Reef or Ningaloo or wherever, and you can see coral reefs, but they are not—they are just nothing compared to what they were. They are now going to disappear. They're the going to be the first aren't they? Yeah. ecosystem on Earth yeah. to disappear. This yeah. is a tragedy. Yeah. Um, but you know people are experimenting. people are trying to regrow parts of coral reefs so um, with various different methods, so either by um, implanting the algae that live within coral reefs um, and um, implanting genetically modifying them, or implanting algae that are, um, are much more resistant to temperature change or to acidity or, or pollution, or one of the other million assaults that we put on these um, creatures. But what else do coral reefs do? Well, in this case, they are actually infrastructure, they're the islands. Yes. So, so um, there's reclamation, land reclamation projects going on all around the world. A lot, a lot of countries, I mean, the Netherlands is entirely almost mm. reclaimed, it's, you know, um, look at Dubai. So, we are creating artificial um, islands and so on, and, and that is continuing. You know, how sustainable this is, I don't know. You know, how long, for how, for how long can we save New Orleans? You know, it's ultimately, it's, um, it has a limited life. And yet, it's the most important port on the most important river in the United States, you know, the, the biggest economy. So, but.
0: <laughs> but you even describe in Ladakh people, individuals making artificial glaciers. Yeah. I mean, d- d- the yeah. scale so of. So, so,
1: so, we either have to recreate the infrastructure that we had of the Holocene, mm. you know, and these enormous, massive, free storage of fresh water mm. that we have all taken for granted. Um, and so, yes, there are projects to, to recreate, to create artificial glaciers. And, and when I was in Ladakh, which is incredibly high, above 4,000 metres, so... Um, um, yeah, the, the uh, explanation of uh, how our hemoglobin works and so on. Mine wasn't working particularly well up there. I could hardly breathe. Um, when I was up there, in a place which is a high Arctic desert, I mean, it doesn't rain there, and they depend completely—they depend completely on glacial meltwater for irrigation, for fresh water, for drinking water, for everything. What's happening there is again. This is a. This is. An important part. You know, we're losing biodiversity. We're also losing cultural diversity. We're becoming homogenised as a as as a species, as a as humans, um, culturally. Um, so we risk losing the Ladakhi language, um, the Ladakhi customs. It's, you know, really beautiful, interesting people, uh, because they are joining the great diaspora. They are joining the urban migration. This enormous migration that's taking place all around the world to live in cities. They're leaving to live in Mumbai or Delhi in the slums. So, a solution to this, one like, 70-year-old former railway worker, um, Indian railway worker, came up with the ingenious plan to create an artificial glacier. And what that involved was digging a Great Depression in the shadow of a, of a mountain above, um, above 5,000 well, above 4,000 metres, maybe near to 5,000 metres, where the glaciers have all disappeared. And what he did was he channelled the meltwater of a still higher glacier above 6,000 metres using sort of stone embankments, I mean, a lot of climbing, a lot of hand tools involved. And he managed to channel the water, slow it down, slow it down into this great depression that he made um, in the shadow of the mountains, And it froze. He got an artificial glacier. You know, I mean, it's not you know, the many metres deep of a real glacier. But it's enough, it's enough. And, and it stayed frozen until the sun rises high enough to um, cast its light on, um, on the glacier, which is around um, April, which is... When the glacier melts, and that's perfect for sowing season. So what it's meant is that they've got they've got more time. The people there, people are now returning from the cities to come back to repopulate the villages of Ladakh. He's made more than ten of these, and they can grow not just barley like they used to before, because it's so high up, you know, um, and cold there. Now, because of global warming, the upside of global warming, they can now grow. At least two harvests a year. Um, they can grow apricots, apples, tomatoes, uh, wheat, different <coughs> variety of crops. So um, not for very much longer, because you know eventually even the even higher glaciers are going to melt. But it's buying them time. You know, it's buying it's buying us all time to adapt to this new world and, and to find some sort of other solution, because we are going to have to find a solution to re- replace I glaciers. That,
0: it's astonishing to hear that work, but equally it's astonishing to hear the kind of, I know you're not saying this lightly, but the readiness with which we can now say all the glaciers have gone. You know, yeah. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it, for you to see it and for them to see it happening every day, year on year, yeah. that the glaciers just aren't present.
1: Yeah, you go to the Andes, the Himalayas. people are saying, oh yeah, there was a glacier up there. You know, so I met people in the Andes, an alpaca village, who are literally, literally painting a mountain. They're going up the mountain with huge buckets of white paint and literally painting a black mountain white in the hope of increasing its reflectivity, its albedo, and the hope that, anything that any precipitation that does fall will freeze there. You know, people are desperate, and they're trying everything. We are experimenting. We, we, that's what we do. We experiment, we experiment. And from this, you know, something will come, hopefully. I,
0: when, I, when I read this, I'd, I heard of these these um, endeavours. I heard them as... Um, I couldn't help but hear them as palliatives and thinking, well, this is all, you know, Band-Aids, too late in the day. What are we, you know, what are we playing at here? Until I reached the end of the book, and this really poignant piece in it, where you imagine your son's future, as an old man, in fact, with with all of these interventions, and the planet um, just, just saved, almost, into something that is functioning, yes, with lots of damage, but equally with the kind of technology you're describing, and ingenuity and imagination, allowing not just our species, but others to flourish. So you see this as very hopeful, don't you, the kind of ingenuity and technology
1: Yeah. I mean, I
0: until Trump. I know we're not going to mention him.
1: Yeah, I'm not. We don't. No.
0: <laughs> but you have seen that as really hope. You've seen that as grounds. Yeah, for I hope. do. I yeah. do.
1: Um, I think I, f- I, c- I. find it quite difficult to. Um, I find it quite difficult to conceive of a world where where it has all gone so badly wrong. Where you know, I don't. I don't want to think of that. I want to think of. A positive way that we can, and, and there are, there are so many positive mm. ways that we can get out of this. Mm. You know, I mean, these are enormous problems, mm. but, you know, we are pretty ingenious.
0: And amazing people that you're encountering. These here.
1: people yeah. are extraordinary. Yeah. They really are the most inspiring, yeah. wonderful people. Mm. Um, and these are just ones I found. They're, they're people all around the world doing the most the most incredible things, and um, you know it 's not just it 's not just um, you know a few individuals trying things it 's whole communities facing up to the fact that they 're not going to just sit there and wait for someone from um, you know, Harvard or Oxford or wherever, yes. to come up with a, a solution that they've, you know, they've practised and they've worked out in their lab and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't work. I mean, yes, solutions will come from there as well, but they can't wait, you know? They've got a problem right now. They don't have water or, you know, they, they can't... Um, they haven't got land anymore or whatever the hell the problem is. They have to solve it right now, as, as we have always done. But these people... These people are really geoengineering yes. their world on yes. a small scale. You're
0: doing it, Yeah, yeah. I may bring the light up some questions, is that all right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We could.